0: Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every every living creature that moves with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Mm -hmm. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation.
1: I don't know if you've uh, noticed, but we've had some weather over the weekend. Um, We as a family had planned to go to the aquarium on Friday as a sort of a half-term gesture, a little bit of a treat day out Thank you very much, Tesco Club Card points, triple rewards. And we were a little bit nervous about heading out, but we reckoned we could get on the tube okay and off at the other end, um, and our line was running and so on. So I checked on Google Maps to make sure that the aquarium was still open, got sidetracked by the comments section. Some wag had asked, how's the fishing there? It had generated several hundred responses. <laughs> Someone else had asked whether there were spectator tickets available for the snorkeling with sharks session which somebody else had replied, no, they don't do a snorkeling with shark session. And something within me died. <laughs> but I got myself away from that, onto the website, checked it was all okay, booked tickets, and we were set. And we headed off, children very excited. But when we got there, there were big signs all over the front door, closed due to bad weather. Now, I don't know exactly why high winds affect an indoor aquarium. Perhaps they thought that If they opened the door, some sort of vortex would sweep in and suck all the fish out of the tank into a kind of a tornado, which, frankly, I would have paid full price to have seen. (laughs) But anyway, we were stuck with an afternoon of trying to amuse children by any means possible along the South Bank. Daddy's impromptu lecture about the 1951 Festival of Britain and the subsequent effect on town planning in the area didn't really cut it, and so instead we resorted to climbing up and down the stairs in the Royal Festival Hall. It was an anticlimactic afternoon. Now, one afternoon of disappointment isn't a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but much of the Bible addresses a similar but much more important question which is this, will all of God's plans and purposes for our world ultimately end in disappointment as well, or are they actually going somewhere? Is the world really going to get to some kind of great conclusion? In the scientific world, the cosmologists, many of them don't think that that is the case, that the ultimate future of our universe is that entropy will take its toll and the whole thing will degrade into a kind of cosmic junkyard with nothing really happening at all. One big anticlimax. Is that what's going to happen? Is it going to be a little bit like our journey to the aquarium? Lots of excitement along the way. But ultimately, when we get there, there's not really anything at all. Well, over the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to persuade us that Genesis 1 was written as a sort of prologue before you get to the main narrative of the rest of the Bible with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, We've been imagining that we are the children of Israel around the campfire, listening to old Uncle Moses telling us stories about the past, stories about the backstory to the journey that we are all on with God. It's a journey that began with our forefather Abraham, But there are some fundamental things that we needed to know about creation before we got to that point. So far he's told us about how the God who called our father Abraham is the one and only true God who made absolutely everything. The world was made by the authority of one God and one God alone who holds all of the cards. And he's also told us that God is a good God who intends good things for our world. That's what he wanted. Now, finally, Moses wants to show the children that God is also a God of great purpose. He takes every plan that he has to completion. His purposes don't end in anticlimax, like my Aquarian trip. And that's really the point of what's going on with day seven of creation at the end of the passage that we just had read there in chapter two. If the prologue of Genesis was simply there to tell us about how the world was made, this little bit about day seven at the end wouldn't really be necessary. It's not like an extra stage of creation. The creation of the world was done by the end of day six. But it does tell us something key about God, about how he brings his purposes to their end goal. The word finished is the key word in these verses. That's what's really important. But let's begin by building back up to it, by going back through chapter 1, Uh, Once again, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking for repeated words and ideas in the passage to try and get a sense of what the author is drawing our attention to. It's not a foolproof way of discovering what's important in a passage and what the author um, really wanted to say, but it does help with a passage like this when you can see some kind of repeated pattern to the whole thing. So far, we've seen that God's authority is repeated throughout chapter one. He speaks, let there be, and then the thing happens. We've also seen uh, that uh, the goodness of creation is repeated throughout chapter one as well. After every stage, God sees the work that he has done and he declares that it is good. But there's another clearly repeated pattern which we haven't really touched upon, which is the temporal dimension to all of this, the sense of time and progress throughout the creation narrative. The creation account is divided up into six days Uh, Six stages, sorry, marked by the days. And there's a clear sense of progress from one to the next. So, in chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that to begin with, the earth is without form and void. The most basic distinction that there is between stuff and no stuff doesn't even exist at the start. And then there's a sort of journey of increasing complexity as you go through the stages. Um, So, God creates light and separates it from the darkness. And he creates the sky and he separates it from the earth. And he creates the dry land and separates it um, from the waters. Then he causes vegetation to grow up on the dry land. Then he populates the sky with planets and stars. Then he brings forth life out of the seas and out of the air. And then he brings it from the land as well. Until finally, last of all, he puts his own image within the creation that he has made in the form of humanity. I used the illustration last week of a master sculptor taking a lump of clay and working and refining it and crafting it until he or she has brought out all of the detail of this beautiful project. God doesn't just uh, click his fingers and the whole thing is done in one go, interestingly. It's a project that he works and refines towards a conclusion. There's a sense of progress from one stage to the next. And at the end of each stage, we get this sort of structural marker of the days. It says there was evening and then there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. And these days mark the sense of progress through the project. They don't necessarily have to be taken as literal evenings and literal mornings. They might be, but they don't have to be. If you think about it, the way that evening and morning are determined are by the movement of the sun. But the sun doesn't actually get made until day four. So in what sense is there evening and morning on days one to three? Well, that's not the point. It's a figurative way of talking. The evening and morning are supposed to represent one stage of creation coming to completion and a new stage beginning. And all of this leads up to day seven. Let me read again from chapter 2. Verse 1, and you might like to follow along in your Bibles. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God rest, finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In day seven, we're told that the work of creation has now been finished. It's come to the conclusion that God was working the whole thing towards. And you'll notice that day seven is different from the other days because there isn't evening and morning at the end of it. Why is that? Because the work of creation has finished. Each new day of creation takes you one stage closer to the end goal. But when the goal is reached, the author doesn't put the evening and morning bit in because there are no more stages. There's no end to the seventh day because really the seventh day represents the beginning of the completed project. Before I started working for the church, I worked as a junior architect for several years, a job that mostly involves coloring in. And you think I'm joking by that, but actually sometimes there were whole days where I was drawing and coloring in and getting paid for it. For some reason that required two university degrees, and I've never quite worked out why. But I worked for a practice that did numerous large-scale projects. And what you discover is that large-scale projects need a very clear plan of work that gets followed. Now, uh, extremely conveniently, this plan of work is divided into seven stages, which is going to be very useful for the illustration I'm just about to make. The earlier stages are sort of conceptual. Stage two, you might make some models that are kind of vague, and you're just trying to get a sense. Stage four, by stage four, you might be trying to work at the detail and think about how the whole thing comes together. But the final stage, day seven, is called the in-use stage and that stage doesn't have an end to it because it's all about how the building will be used once construction has been completed and finished at which point uh, so stages one to six therefore are the construction of the building and then stage seven is how it will be used at that point. You get to the end of stage six and the architect stands back and looks at the finished thing and declares that what they have done is very good. The contractor declares it to be very expensive and the, the public very ugly, but the architect stands back and declares it to be very good. And at that point, stage seven begins. That's not the end of the project at stage six because it's supposed to be used from that point onwards. And stage seven doesn't come to an end because the building carries on being used from that point until, of course, in 40 years' time, it gets demolished for aging very gracelessly. As you can see, some aspects of this analogy don't quite work, but you get the idea. Now, hopefully, all this helps us to make sense of what it means that God rested on the seventh day as well. Let me read 2 verse 2 again. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now rest to us implies simply chilling out That's what we do every weekend. You have the working week, and then you get to rest at the weekend, unless you have children. But the point here isn't that God had a break and a bit of downtime and played a little bit of FIFA or something like that. The point is that God rests from the work of creation in the sense that he has completed the project. It has now come to its goal. And so, really, it would probably make more sense to think of it as God enjoying the creation that he has made. When the building is constructed, the architect can rest from the work of designing it, and now the building can be enjoyed. Or perhaps an illustration closer to home. When you finish constructing your IKEA sofa... Yes, you can sit down and have a rest on it, but the point is, you can carry on enjoying it from that point onwards. The Allen key can be put in the drawer of miscellaneous items, never to be found again. And you can enjoy the sofa that you have made, put the TV on day after day from that point onwards. The other important dimension to day seven of creation is that God blesses it and makes it holy And this is tightly connected to God completing creation and resting or beginning to enjoy it. Have a look at verse 3 again. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of the work that he had done in creation. Why because? Why does God bless it and make it holy because he rested? What does blessing and holiness have to do with God resting? If all God was doing was chilling out, then the sentence doesn't really make sense. There's no particular reason that he should make the seventh day blessed and holy if all he's doing is taking a break. The because wouldn't really follow in that sentence. But if the point is that God has brought the construction of the world to completion so that now it can be enjoyed... Well, of course, it makes perfect sense, because now the work of creation has finished, it has reached its goal, and God can bless it and make it holy, so that it flourishes. He's made a very good creation. It's all ready to go. Now is the time to bless it and make it holy, or sanctify it, as another word that the Bible sometimes uses to mean the same thing. Now, those two words are a little bit nebulous to us, blessing and holiness, but both words are extremely important here. They're right at the heart of God's purposes for the world. They're both words that make more sense, as you read on through the Bible, but broadly speaking, blessing is about flourishing, and holiness is about dedication to the Lord. Let me just unpack each of those a little bit more. First, blessing. When we use the word bless, it doesn't tend to mean very much. If I said, you know, oh, little Johnny's been working very hard for his exam, bless him, then I don't really mean very much by the bless bit, other than a vague sense of fondness towards Johnny. But in the Bible, when God determines to bless, that is a purposeful act that he is putting in motion. For example, one of the most famous psalms in the Bible is Psalm 67, which starts like this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Which on its own makes you think, oh, isn't that nice, that makes me feel good. But then when you read through the rest of the psalm, it fills it out. It's about the earth yielding its increase and God's saving power being known amongst the nations and that sort of thing. Blessing is about God's ongoing determination to bring about good things. Now, what about holiness? Holiness. Again, it's a word that doesn't mean that much to us. On the front cover of your Bible, for example, you see that it's called a holy Bible. But what does that mean? Would it be any different if it was just a Bible rather than a holy Bible? What does holy, does it just mean that you're supposed to sort of take care of it and not bend the pages? Is that what holiness means? When I was younger, one of my favorite computer games was Worms 2, Some of you probably, I'm seeing some nodding. Others of you have enjoyed that game. One of the most devastating weapons in the game was the holy hand grenade. But really, the only difference that holiness made to this hand grenade was it was a much bigger explosion. Is that what holiness means? It's a word that we don't really know what it means in the 21st century. It's a bit ambiguous. Sounds a bit religious, but that's about it. And really, we would need to delve into more of the Bible to understand it properly. But at a very basic level, it has to do with dedication to the Lord God. So later on in the Bible's narrative, when Israel are told to make the temple for God, God tells them to set aside an inner chamber called the most holy place. It's a specific room that is dedicated to the Lord God alone. The general muck and mess of day-to-day life outside isn't allowed inside. It is a holy place. And so when God makes the seventh day holy, there's a sense in which he is dedicating the whole of creation to himself. This is not a world that is meant to be abused and trashed. This is his work. It is a holy creation. And when you step back and think about it, Blessing and holiness pretty much summarizes everything that the world needs in order to operate rightly, or at least the world the way that God intended. Again, the building analogy might help with this. Imagine a new school being designed, and the work of construction has just finished, and stage seven, the user fades. Is beginning and all the children are coming in excitedly to see their new building you can imagine the head teacher calling them together for an initial assembly where in a sense he gives a speech that blesses the building and makes it holy this is a wonderful new school that we've all been given it's full of new equipment and facilities that we can all enjoy together go forth and have a good time but it's not to be trashed we have to take care of this new school. We have to treat it properly. Blessing and holiness. Actually, the children of Israel round the campfire could probably understand all of this quite readily because of the importance of the seventh day, which was already built into their week. As soon as Moses tells them that on, seven, on day seven, God rested from his work and blessed it and made it holy, they know exactly what he's talking about. It's like the Sabbath one child pipes up. We rest on the seventh day of the week as well. That's right, children. We rest every seventh day so that we have one day of the week to thank God for the world that he has made. That's why we devote one day to him every week. I like the Sabbath, another child says. Daddy's not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath, and so he plays with us instead. Normally, he's too tired during the week. The Sabbath's my favorite day of the week. Uncle Moses, is that what God did? Did he play with creation on day seven after he had made it? Well, in a way, I suppose he did, children. God had finished making the world, and now he could enjoy it. A little bit like how we enjoy the Sabbath day. But he also made the seventh day holy. And that's why we take the Sabbath seriously. It's a day to be enjoyed, yes, but it's also a special day that we dedicate to God. So hopefully you're getting a sense of why the seventh day matters so much in the creation account. It's not a separate stage of creation per se. It's not as if it's an extra thing that God is making. No, this is the moment when days 1 to 6 have come to completion. They've been finished and now creation can be enjoyed with blessing and holiness from this point onwards. But now here's the really interesting bit. The prologue of Genesis that we've been looking at isn't just the account of God making the world. It also sets the agenda for everything else as well. You might be thinking, why do we need to know all this stuff about the seventh day in creation? Why not just tell us about how the world was made and move on? And the point is because the seventh day gives us a snapshot up front of how the rest of the story is going to play out. Think about what we've learned about the creation of the world. One God who made a good world with a purpose. He had total authority, he filled the world with good things, he finished creation and brought it to its goal so that it could flourish. That's what the rest of the Bible is about as well. And this is why we have this as a prologue, because if God brought the work of creation to its goal, the making of the world, Will he not also bring the ongoing life of the world to its goal as well? There's a straight line that runs all the way from day seven in Genesis, all the way through to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, and the new heavens and the new earth that God makes. And his vision for how the world would work is finally realized. Because God doesn't have a plan B He only has the original plan and purpose that he set forth. He declared the world to be a very good world. He finished the work of creating it. He blessed it and made it holy. Will he not do the same thing for the ongoing life of the world as well? Or will he give it up as a sort of bad job along the way? Of course not. To do so would be a denial of the seventh day of creation because, of course, as the main narrative of the Bible actually gets going, as we all know, evil sneaks in the back door and makes everything much more complicated. We all wanted to ask questions about this in the question time last week, and rightly so. We don't get a clear answer as to where evil came from or why God allowed it to exist. Maybe we will in the future, or maybe that's information that God hasn't disclosed to us. But as soon as the narrative of Genesis begins in the rest of chapters two to three, it's all about how the user stage starts going in the wrong direction. It's about how humanity decides to go its own way. It's about the children beginning to trash the school. There's a funny Gary Larson cartoon with God taking the world out of his oven in his kitchen and looking at it and thinking to himself, I think this thing's only half-baked. It's a funny... Um, Cartoon, and it makes a sharp observation because sometimes the world does feel like that. But it's precisely wrong. The whole point of the prologue of Genesis is that when God made the world, it wasn't half-baked because he brings his plans to completion and he brought creation to completion. That's why we have the prologue first because we learn that God brings his plans to completion. He takes every project to its intended goal. And this is why it's the backstory to Abraham. Because when God calls Abraham in chapter 12, he begins to put a plan in motion that will take the life of the world towards where it was supposed to be. Not back to say day seven, because this is an ongoing project, but rather fulfilling the original intention of day seven of creation. There is no plan B. And we can have the same confidence today. We can look around and see that God finished the work of creating the world. It's not half-baked. And we can also have confidence that he will take the ongoing life of the world to its completion as well. In the new heavens and the new earth. The children of Abraham, the children of the Lord Jesus, will receive their inheritance Again, perhaps imagining the continuation of the conversation around the campfire with Moses will help. Uncle Moses, one child says, I wish it could be the Sabbath day every day. Why didn't God just make every day like the Sabbath? Well, that's the point, children. When God made the world in the beginning, he made it so that it could always be the Sabbath day. Now, the story got more complicated because we made a mistake and we didn't want to be God's image bearers. I'll tell you that story another time. But that wasn't what God always intended. Actually, that's why he called great-grandfather Abraham many years ago because he wanted to take him to the great Sabbath in the future. That's why we're on this journey through the desert. Have a look in the distance. You can just about see the hills of the land of Canaan that we're going to. When we get there... It's going to feel a little bit like it's the Sabbath day every day because it's a good land and there are rivers to swim in and vineyards to play hide and seek in and mountains to climb. And the grown ups will be able to grow good food for us to enjoy and God will keep us safe from our enemies. I like the sound of that, Uncle Moses. Will there be dinosaurs in Canaan? Well, maybe let's just wait and see. But whatever it's going to be like, children, you won't be disappointed. Will we be happy forever in Canaan, Uncle Moses? Because I'm still sad that my little brother Jimmy died last year. Will that happen in Canaan? Yes, children, that might still happen in Canaan. But the most important thing to understand is that Canaan is really just the beginning. It's going to be good there, but God has a much bigger plan than that. One day he'll take us to a Sabbath where even that sort of thing doesn't happen. Because do you know what God promised to great-grandfather Abraham, children? He promised us not just the land of Canaan, but the whole of creation. That's the final Sabbath day that God is taking us to. And when that happens, not only will our friends and family not die anymore, but you might even get to see Jimmy again. Because our God is a God of the living, not of the dead. One of the older children pipes up. Uncle Moses, but how do we know that God wants to make it like the Sabbath day every day? Because that's what he did when he created the world. When he made the world, he finished it with a Sabbath. Now he's taking us to a much greater Sabbath. You can imagine that kind of conversation happening, can't you? And in fact, really all I've just done there is summarize what the author to the Hebrews says in the first passage that we had read earlier. We won't look at it now because we haven't got time and many of us have been studying it in our small groups. But that's the point. Just as God rested from creation and brought it to its goal when he made it, so he has a final rest that he is bringing all who trust in the Lord Jesus towards as well. The world will not go round forever in cycles with no end destination, nor will it degrade into some kind of cosmic junkyard in the end with no life or energy left in it, an anticlimactic trip with nothing at the end. God is taking it towards an ultimate Sabbath where it can be blessed and holy forever the way that he always intended. Let's pray to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of great purpose, Thank you that you finished creation and blessed it and made it holy. Thank you that you will bring the life of this world to its goal as well. And we thank you that we who trust in Jesus can look forward to a much greater Sabbath to come in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.